Let's get begin, let's begin here. Father in heaven, we thank you once again that we have the opportunity to study your word. And through the study of your Lord of your word we can learn more about you and your ways and how you direct our lives and are involved with us. We ask that you would help us to understand this book of Psalms because it uh, gives us so much information and so many different uh, images and methods. So we ask that you're, you will eat our understanding and be with us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. This is part two of Psalms. So uh, last time I told you that our title is Jesus Christ, our all in all, because there are so many different images and given to us in the book of Psalms. I just put the flight in here again. It's the same as last time. So it tells us about the book of Psalms as a collection of songs and prayers and poetry written by many authors. And of the 150 Psalms, 73 are attributed to David. But I should point out that there are 73 Psalms in the book of Psalms that have the title that they're written by David. There are a few, a couple of other psalms that don't have any information on them about who is the author, but the New Testament tells us that David was the author. So that's that's uh, something I learned this week when I was studying. Um, the, the psalms were written over a thousand-year period because they, the first one, the earliest one, goes clear back to Moses, Psalm 90, and they're ending with the, with the Jewish captivity. Um, so the psalms were collected over this time. And I pointed out that, that psalms cover the whole gamut, the whole range of, of human experience from the highs to the lows, and from the greatest sorrow and depression to the most thrilling expressions of joy. But through it all, it, it all focuses on the power of God to be with us through, through those highs and lows. Uh, I pointed out that the, the book of Psalms is divided up into five books and that those books correspond to the five books of the, of the Pentateuch. So we have songs of relationship, songs of redemption, songs of refuge, songs of rebellion's cost, what it costs to disobey God, songs of revival. And so there is this parallel between the book of Psalms and the, the Pentateuch. The first book is about uh, man and creation, so it corresponds to Genesis. And the next one corresponds to Exodus, it's about Israel and redemption. The next one is about worship and uh, the temple, that's what that corresponds to Leviticus. The next one corresponds to Numbers, it's about our sojourn on this earth, what, what happens to us as human beings as we go through our lives. And then the last section is about uh, praise in the Word of God, so that corresponds to Deuteronomy. And uh, the book of Psalms plays an integral part in the grand unfolding of the gospel story in many different ways. It's Jesus uh, quoted from the Psalms, and I'll talk about that towards the end here. Um, and then there are those messianic Psalms that give us lots of information about this Messiah before he came to the earth. So we had all this information about him before he arrived on the scene. Uh, the history, as I mentioned, the book of Psalms was written over about a thousand years. And the material that the Psalms deal with, it ranges everything from the beginning, the creation, to the, the end of time when the Messiah returns to this earth and establishes his millennial kingdom. And the, the, the travel tips that I gave you that we can be honest when we're talking to God because, after all, we can't hide anything from him anyway. And secondly, he knows how to deal with our, even our greatest hurts and pains. Anchor yourself to God through his word. I, I keep going back to that 
a memory verse of when I, in my youth about um, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So make, make scripture an integral part of your life. And the songs are realistic. The psalms are realistic. Uh, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that there are bound to be some, some dark valleys and times of hardship that you have to deal with. And the, psalm, the psalms uh, addresses all of those. And we can praise God no matter what happens in our lives. He is with us at all times and under all circumstances. I mentioned that when I was studying the different ways of categorizing the, the different psalms, there are many ways to do it. Last week we talked about some of the different types of psalms, praise psalms, wisdom songs, lament psalms, messianic songs, psalms, penitence psalms, uh, imprecation psalms, thanksgiving psalms. But another, another way that we can look at the psalms is in terms of to whom are they addressed because not all psalms are addressed to the same person or persons. Uh, most psalms are addressed to God, of course. The, the psalmist is speaking to God. But some psalms are addressed to other people. The, God, the psalmist is speaking to other people. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So he's, he's addressing other people, other believers primarily. Uh, they might even be addressed to the self. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is talking to himself. And some of the psalms, in some places, are addressed to angelic beings. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. And there are some psalms, a few psalms, where God is speaking. So the message is from God. He's giving us his thoughts. One of the... Um, things that you might think as you look at the book of Psalms, you might think, well, it's, it's poetry, it's imagery. Uh, I'm probably not going to find a lot of doctrine in the Psalms. Well, that's not true. If you read carefully and you think about the implications, there's a lot of doctrine in, in the Psalms. Um, this, the Psalms tell us that, uh, that God is omniscient, that he knows everything. Uh, one of the Psalms says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And the, the Psalms tell us that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And the psalmist tell us that God is omnipotent. He is almighty. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet unformed. And in your book they, were, they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 2 is one of those psalms where God is speaking. And I really believe that in Psalm 2, we see the Trinity. We see the three persons of the Godhead speaking. So in verses 1 through 5, I think the Holy Spirit is speaking. It starts out with, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And it continues on, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and this is where the Father comes in, in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in the next verses, verses 7 through 9, I think we see the son. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
And it continues on. Uh, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's, the son is telling us what the father says to him. And in the final verses of the psalm, we go back to the Holy Spirit. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And it goes on to the end where it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I think that's a a good insight to the psalm too that gives us a whole a whole another way of looking at that psalm. So the the book of Psalms is rich with with doctrine. Now, Psalm twenty two, this is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, is it's Brian's too, I know one of his <laughs> because he and, he and I have talked about this many times. When Christians first read Psalm 22, they're really shocked, they're really surprised, because most Christians have, have probably read the Gospels before they read the Psalms. So they never knew that this was in the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Psalm 22.1. And of course, those are the words that Jesus spoke on the cross. We talk about the the seven sayings of Jesus, and and this is right in the middle. This is number four. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's recorded in both Matthew and Mark, that Jesus said that on the cross. So you very quickly get the idea that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's, It's describing the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. And you're reading along, and, you, and yeah, this, this is definitely about Christ and about how he suffered and died. And, and then you get to verse 6, and you're shocked again because you wonder, well, how does this relate to anything? Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And you might think, well, how could the psalmist describe our Savior, the Messiah, as a worm? What's going on here? How can that be? We recognize, of course, that Jesus, um, as a man here on the earth, had ultimate humility. And so that's certainly one aspect of, of him proclaiming himself a worm is that humility that he took upon himself when he condescended to come down to earth as a human being. But there's something more going on here, and I think this is really important to to catch. There are different Hebrew words for worm. One of those is ramah, which means a maggot. And uh, this is... There are some scriptures where this word appears. Um, the Exodus reference is, um, remember when when they tried to uh, go out and, and gather manna on the Sabbath, it would, it would stink and breed worms? Well, that's the, the maggots. Uh, the word maggot is used many times in the book of Job, and then it's used also in Isaiah. But that is not the word that's used here for a worm. The word that's used here for a worm is tola'at, which is a grub worm. It's a specific variety of grub worm, but it's a grub worm. It's used here in, in Psalm 22. It's also used in the book of Jonah. Remember the, the plant that grew up and provided shade for Jonah, and then a worm came along and chewed on the plant and it died? Well, that's the tola'at. That's the, the grub worm. But here's where the, where the surprise comes in. The Hebrew word tolat, translated worm in Psalm 22, is also used to refer to the red dye made from that worm and to the cloth dyed with that red dye. Uh, when the book of Exodus is describing the tabernacle, over and over again we see this expression blue and purple and scarlet. Well, that scarlet 
is tolaat. It's that red dye that comes from that worm. Uh, it's fabric that's dyed that red color. That's what it refers to. Um, the, this red fabric was also used in the book of Leviticus uh, for the ritual cleansing for leprosy. It involved red yarn. Well, that's how the yarn became red. It was dyed red with this dye that comes from the worm. And also in the ritual of the red heifer, the ashes of the red heifer, uh, different things were mixed with the ashes of the red heifer, and one of them was red wool. So once again, we have the fabric that's dyed with this red dye. Now, here's a, here's a picture to show you what happens when the female worm of the, the tolat, the crimson worm or scarlet worm, when she's going to lay eggs, uh, she fastens herself to some wood, like, like a tree or a fence post or a stick. And she fastens herself so tenaciously to that wood that if you tried to pull her off, you'd kill her. You'd, you'd, she would come apart because she's really fastened uh, tenaciously to that wood. And she forms a hard shell over her while, the, while this process is taking place. Now this, this um, worm and the, the shell around it, it's very small. It's about the size of a pea or a... Uh, uh, navy beans, it's quite small. But there are some interesting things that happen when this worm is about to lay her eggs and, and does lay her eggs. You can see the redness there uh, because there, there's a, a red substance in the shell that, that is used, it was used anciently to make dye. The crimson or scarlet worm is a symbol of Jesus. The crimson worm was not recognized as a worm. I told you how when people see this on a plant, they don't even realize that it's a worm. They just think it's part of the plant. Likewise, Jesus was not and still is not recognized by many as the Messiah. This was especially true when he was here in his ministry on the earth. The crimson worm stains the wood it's attached to, and it stains its young red. Jesus stained the cross red with his blood. We are covered and protected by his blood. The crimson worm feeds her young with her own body. The larvae actually eat her flesh. Jesus said that he who eats and drinks his flesh and blood has eternal life. When it dies, the crimson worm turns from red to white. It turns into a, a white, waxy substance after three days. A picture of Christ's resurrection after three days. In Isaiah, we read, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The crimson worm and the scarlet dye derived from it are a picture of the person and work of Christ. That's why the Messiah is described as a worm. So I hope that gives you some idea of the kind of richness that you can find in the book of Psalms. When I was a, a young person, a young believer, I decided that, well, I wanted to make Scripture an integral part of my life. I wanted to get as much Scripture in as I could, right to begin with. 
so what I would do is I would, I would go through the Bible in a year, and each year I would take a different translation. So I would read through the King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, and so forth. I would do a different translation each year. And when I was, when I, when I was reading the Revised Standard Version, I was really struck when I came to Psalm 29. I thought the, the Revised Standard translators did a really good job with, with Psalm 29 of capturing the, the poetry and, and making, bringing it over to English. Um, I found that as I was going through Psalm 29 in the Revised Standard Version, it just, I started singing it. And it just seemed to just flow quite naturally the way that the translators had done it. Many of the Psalms have been the source of inspiration for, for hymns and songs, hundreds of songs, thousands of songs over the years have been... Uh, Know, arranged and, and put the music. I don't know if I can do this, but <laughs> I, w I was a, a teenager when this happened to me, but I was just really struck by the, the way that Psalm 29 reads. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. <laughs> so, I mentioned last time the, the nature psalms, and, and this, this particular psalm is about the power of God in a storm. One of the things that you'll notice about the Psalms is that many of the Psalms have titles above them. Not all of them do, but some of them. And these titles might give information about the circumstances under which the Psalm was written. For example, it might be by David when he had escaped from Saul or some, some situation like that. Or it might give... Um, some information, some musical direction, and such things as this. Um, the question arises, are these titles part of the inspired text or were they added later? Well, unfortunately, I can't give you a simple yes or no answer to that question because it does seem that some of the titles were added later and it seems that some of the titles go way back, so we're we don't really know if they go way back to the original inspired text. But the, some of the information that's, that's giving, given in these titles might be confusing to you. So I thought it would just be good to 
to go through some of this information and explain what these things are. So first of all, we'll look at some technical terms that are in the titles. So there's Mismore musical accompaniment, there's sheer vocal music, masculine, didactic or contemplative, mictam, song of covering, atonement, tapilla, prayer, tehillah, song of praise, shigayon, wandering or irregular song. We'll look at each one of those. Mismore meant a song rendered to the accompaniment, accompaniment of instrumental music, originally a stringed instrument. That's all that Mismore means. It's just a, a song that's accompanied by music, originally a stringed instrument. There are 57 of those psalms. Sheer is simply a general term for vocal music. There are 27 of those psalms. And that includes the 15 songs of ascent. And I'll talk some more about those later. But the sheer is simply a vocal, vocal music. So it might, it's apparently what we would call a cappella, musical accompaniment, just vocal music. Masculine is a didactic poem or contemplative poem. Didactic means teaching. So in other words, it's designed to teach you something. That's one idea, or maybe it's just a contemplative poem, something that you should think about. And since not all of the, the 13 psalms in this category seem to be didactic, uh, probably a, it's better to see them as contemplative, things to meditate on, things to think about. Muktam might signify a song of covering or atoning for sin. That's one idea about the Muktam. That it deals with covering or atoning for sin. Others think it refers to a composition intended uh, memorable thoughts or pithy sayings or eloquent refrains. There are only six of those psalms, the Mictam. Tapella simply means prayer. There are five of those psalms, which are explicitly prayers. Tehillah means song of praise. There are five of those psalms. In, in Hebrew Bibles, the word for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, the plural, plural form of that word. Tehillim is the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms. Shigayon means an irregular or wandering song. You might say sort of an improvised song. There's only one psalm, Psalm 7, that bears this term. Then there are the musical terms in the titles. The word lam manasea means to the choir leader. Neganot with string instruments, nehilot with wind instruments, sheminit with an eight stringed lute, or an octave lower than soprano. They're not sure. Alamot, soprano, or high pitched. Mahalat, mahalat, a song of lament. Lamanasea means to the choir leader. It has been suggested that this term was affixed to those psalms which were included in a special uh, anthology made by the, by the temple choir leader for the convenience of the singers. Rather than including the entire group of 150 psalms in the conglomerate repertoire of the Psalter. So in other words, since we're not, we're not going to use all of these psalms as songs in the temple, we're just going to collect those songs which we do use as songs in the temple. So there's 55 psalms rather than lugging around 150. That's the idea anyway. Neganot means stringed instruments or songs to be sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. Psalms 4, 6, 54, 55, 61, 67, 69, and 76 are those psalms, Neganot psalms, which are accompanied by string instruments. On the other hand, Nehalot means wind instruments. So instead of stringed instruments, they were accompanied by a flute-like instrument. 
and there's only one of those psalms, Psalm 5. Sheminit means either, we're not sure about this, means either an eight-stringed lute or possibly an octave lower than the soprano or alamote, which is the next term we'll be looking at. So we know that there's eight involved in there somehow, but we're not sure whether it's an eight-stringed lute or it simply means an octave, you know, eight, eight notes. And the next word is alamote or maidens, ladies, and it means soprano or high-pitched. So the alamote is a, is a soprano song and the sheminit is a, is a lower song. Mahalat means sickness or grief and may imply, therefore, a, a song of lament. Psalms 53 and 88 are mahalat. Alternatively, one, one scholar suggests this, alternatively, it may have been the name of a woman singer. I don't know if I'd want to have the name that meant sickness or grief, but there it is. And then there are melody indicators. Al-Mut Bab-En and Al-Ayalat Hash-Shahar and Shushan or Al Hoshanim, Al Tashet, and Al Yonat Elam Rehokim. So these words in Psalm 9 may indicate some well known song beginning with the words, the death of a son. The preposition Al means according to, so according to the song, the death of a son. And we do that today too. I mean, a person might write a song that's to be sung to some well-known tune. Like he might, he might write a song and say, well, this song is to be sung uh, according to the tune, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Or this song is to be sung according to the, to the tune of Amazing Grace. So these tunes, these songs were well-known at the time that the psalms were written. Unfortunately, they've been lost in antiquity, so we, don't, we have no idea what, what these songs sounded like today. But, uh, so these words in, in Psalm 9 may indicate some well-known song beginning with the words, the death of the son, of the son. That's what's involved there. El Ayalat Hashar Hashahar means according to the hind of the morning. You know what a hind is, a deer. So there was some tune called according to, called the hind of the morning, the, the, the deer of the morning. And this psalm was, Psalm 22, was sung to that. Shushan, or El Shushanim, signified to the lilies. So there was a song that was known to people in ancient times as to the lilies. Um, ladies in, in Israel still have that name, Shoshana. Uh, the first time that I went to Israel, my, my uh, guide was a, was a lady named Shoshana. And that's just the equivalent of somebody who might be named Lily in our culture. El Tashet means do not destroy or do not corrupt. Apparently, a well-known song began with these words, and its melody was to be followed here. And that's with Psalm 57, 58, 59, and 75. Elgonat Elim Rehokim means according to a dove of silence, those who are afar off. One of the things about Biblical Hebrew is that Biblical Hebrew didn't have any vowel points. So if you take a certain sequence of consonants, sometimes there's more than one way to put vowels under those consonants. So it, it can be a different word completely with a completely different meaning. So it might mean, according to a dove of silence, those who are far off, 
Some have suggested that it should be repointed with different vowels to read terebins afar off. Terebins are oak trees. So are we talking about doves? We're talking about oak trees. Who knows? And then there's the, a technical term which does not occur in the psalm titles is the, is the perplexing word selah, which appears often in the body of the text. It doesn't appear in titles, but it, it appears in the body of the text. And many times it will appear several times in, in, a, in one psalm. While many explanations have been given for this word, the most plausible is that, that which derives it from the root salal, meaning to lift up. But of course, that doesn't really help us too much because, okay, it means to lift up, but what are we lifting up? <laughs> um, it, it's interesting that by the time the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew into Greek, um, they really didn't know what a lot of these terms meant. They, they'd already been lost in history. And so they, they gave us what they thought it meant. Um, the, the Septuagint translators uh, uh, rendered it dia salma, which means musical interlude. That's what they thought Selah was, was musical interlude. So some scholars see it as some kind of, of musical notation. Um, it might mean pause and permit the musical accompaniment to strike up, or else it is a direction for the singer to lift up his voice to a higher intensity or pitch. Others see Selah as instruction to pause and lift the heart in contemplation or med meditation. So they don't see Selah as a, as a musical direction at all. They just think it Think of it as an instruction to, to meditate, to think about these things. I'm, I'm kind of more inclined to, to see it that way because in, in Psalm 67, the word selah occurs in the middle of a sentence. So it's, it seems like kind of an odd place to, to give musical direction. So I'm, I'm more inclined to see it as, the, as, as that... Uh, Meditation, instruction to meditate, to think on these things. I mentioned before a song of ascents. What are they? Psalms 120 through 134 bear in their titles the expression a song of ascents. So there are these 15 psalms that, that say at the beginning a song of ascents. What does that mean? An old Jewish tradition explains this as a reference to a semicircular flight of steps leading up to the court of the temple from the court of the women. The way the temple was set up, it became increasingly um, restricted as you, as you went into the, to the Holy of Holies. So people who were Gentiles had to stay outside the whole temple complex. And then you could go into the temple complex, but the women could only go so far, and then the Israelite men could go further, and then only the priests could go into the temple, and then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So it, it becomes more restricted as you, as you get, go into the temple. So one of the thoughts that some have had is that, that the, the Song of Ascents refers to this 15-step structure in the temple leading from the court of the women into the temple court. And so there you can... see a, a diagram of this. Here's the, here's the 15 steps right here. They're semicircular going into this gate, which, which is called the Nicanor Gate, which goes into the, into the temple courtyard. There's another closer shot of, of the 15 steps that go up here to the Nicanor Gate, going to the temple courtyard. And one more shot of the, the semi-circular steps.
this one shows him as being steeper than some of the other illustrations. But I kind of don't think this is what the Psalms are talking about because these 15 steps, 15 semicircular steps, this was a feature of the second temple, the temple that was built after the captivity, after Israel came back from the captivity. And it was still standing, of course, uh, in the time of, of Jesus. It had been greatly refurbished by King Herod, of course, Herod the Great. But that temple did have these 15 steps, these circular steps. But I don't know that the first temple, the temple that was built by Solomon, had that feature. And that would be the temple that the Psalms are talking about. So I'm, I'm kind of doubtful that that is what the Song of Ascents is all about. A more likely explanation is that these ascents referred to the stages of pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. The children of Israel would sing these psalms on their way to Jerusalem for the annual feast days. There were three pilgrimage feasts which, in which all of the Israelites were required to, to go up to Jerusalem. Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, and then Shavuot, what is in the New Testament, called Pentecost and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So these three times of year, people went up to Jerusalem. The songs of ascent served to pass the time in joyful praise and to build a feeling of esprit de corps and a feeling of unity, of camaraderie, as the people journeyed along. And as I was preparing for this, I, I noticed that the songs of ascent fall into that category of vocal music. And that would make sense because, you know, as you're walking along towards Jerusalem, you probably don't have any musical instruments to accompany you. So it makes sense that it would be vocal music. These messianic psalms in, in the book of Psalms give us much information about the coming Messiah. They include some incredible predictions and depictions of the life and work of Christ. They tell us about his sonship, Psalm 2-7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we discover, of course, in the New Testament that Jesus was the son of God, Matthew 3.17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in Hebrews 1.5, it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it refers to that psalm. It tells us about the deity of Christ. In Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. But of course, the, the really thing that draws our attention is your throne, O God. This Messiah, this coming Messiah is God. And we read in, in Hebrews chapter 1 that very same quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Then we read in the Psalms about the, first the humiliation of Jesus and then his eventual exaltation. In Psalm 8, we, we often think of this as just 
applying to people generally, but it, it, it applies specifically, especially to a, a certain person. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with honor and glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Hebrews chapter 2 quotes that very passage. It says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We read about Christ's obedience, how he sought to do the will of God. Psalm 40. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And Hebrews 10 quotes that passage. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. We read about the ministry and the sufferings of Christ. Psalm 69. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Remember, I, I pointed out the last time uh, that this is referred to when, when Christ cast out the money changers. The zeal of your house has consumed me. Uh, Psalm 69, 4 says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. And then I have several scriptures in the New Testament talking about those very same things. The one in John 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they remembered that, that specific psalm after they saw Jesus cast out the money changers. In Romans 15.3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. All of the Hatred of God was focused, of course, on, on Christ when he was here on the earth. And John fifteen twenty five, but the word is written in their law, the word that is written in their law must be filled. They hated me without a cause. So even though they had no reason to hate Christ, they did. We see that Christ was rejected, but ultimately he is supreme. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus referred to that psalm confronting the religious leaders of his day. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, of course, was betrayed before his crucifixion. Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And we see the fulfillment of that in, in John 13, 18. I'm not speaking of you all, Jesus said. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then we read in Luke twenty-two forty-eight. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
Crucifixion and death. Well, I referred to this before, the Psalm 22, my God, my God, why, ha why have you forsaken me? And the fulfillment, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read about the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection of the Messiah. In Psalm 2, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. And then in 1610, it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And we saw Peter addressing that on the day of Pentecost. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And later on, the Apostle Paul in addressing a group at the city in Antioch said this, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. The ascension. Psalm 68. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. And receiving gifts among men, even, the, even among the rebellious, the Lord God may dwell there. In Ephesians 4.8, the Apostle Paul referred to that very psalm. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul applied that scripture from Psalms to Christ. It tells us about his kingship. Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 89. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. And Acts chapter 5 talks about this. It says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We read about the savior's lordship in Psalms. In Psalm 8 it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Matthew 21, 15 through 16 tells us, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So this is one more example of where Christ referred to the Psalms. The Psalms tell us about his priesthood. Psalm 110, that psalm which is the most quoted in the New Testament. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And 
And of course, Hebrews 5 picks up on that. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Psalms tell us about the reign of the Messiah and how it will be an everlasting reign. Psalm 102. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Hebrews 1 refers to that. It says, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But not only do we have predictions and depictions of Christ in the Messianic Psalms, But Jesus himself quoted often from the book of Psalms in his ministry. So during his childhood, when he was just a child, 12 years old, and his parents lost him, they were looking for him. And in Luke 2, 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. So we can see that right then, even as a child, that the words of scripture had become an integral part of his life. In Psalm 26, these same kinds of, of thinking are seen. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Jesus referred to the Psalms in his Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 48 says, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And then in Psalm 6, it says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So Matthew 35 picks up on this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Or by the earth, he's talking about swearing now. Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So Jesus was quite comfortable using that same language that is used in scripture. And uh, 723, it says in the same continuous passage, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in his teaching, in his ministry, Jesus was using the words of the Psalms. When he was asked about teaching in parables, teaching the multitudes in parables. Psalm 78 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. In Matthew 13.35, Jesus said, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And I referred to this earlier in Psalm 8, where it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Matthew 21 tells us that when the disciples saw this, they recognized that this was the fulfillment of the psalm. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. When, when Jesus was replying to the priests, Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus referred to that scripture when he said, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, 
this was not a new idea of taking him under, taking the people of Jerusalem under his wings like a chicken. Psalm 91 says, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. And we see the fulfillment of that in Matthew 23. When Jesus said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. When the religious leaders of the day got all excited about the idea that Jesus could be God. Jesus pointed them, pointed them to the scriptures. In Psalm 82 it says, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. So in John 34, or John 10, 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Of course, the, the gods that are being referred to here are uh, lowercase g, gods. But the, the idea was that, well, you're getting all uptight about the idea that I can be God, but Scripture tells that others are gods, judges in, in the lowercase sense. On the um, night that he was betrayed, on the night of the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And it is thought that the hymn that they sang would have been the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 136, which begins by saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the last verse of that psalm says, Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Once again, here's the, that Psalm 22 again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. And then also in Psalm 31, 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So these are things that Jesus said on the cross, quoting from the book of Psalms. Matthew 27 tells us about him Quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luke 23, 46 tells us about Jesus calling out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. After the resurrection, in Psalm 24, or excuse me, Luke 24, 44. Jesus referred to all of the Psalms as containing information about him. He talked about the, the threefold division of the scriptures, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms, as all speaking of him. So that is the, the book of Psalms, beginning with the various aspects of creation, continuing right on through the coming of the Messiah and into the second coming of the Messiah and the setting up of his glorious kingdom. We'll close with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful to you for providing us with the book of Psalms and such a treasure trove of doctrine and gospel and history, the past and history in advance in the form of prophecy 
prophecy that was yet to come in the day that it was written, but prophecy that has been fulfilled now for almost 2,000 years with the coming of the Messiah. And we can be just as certain that he will preserve us to the end and that he will come again and receive us unto himself. We thank you for this. We ask for your blessing upon our time that we have spent together this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.